electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Year-end risk management, from Elon without the eccentric to Russia's Google to no more vaccine fights. Our guest has three picks for your portfolio. Plus, it's time to buy crypto, food, and clothes. We've got the moves, the story, and the trade on three key earnings tonight. Why our trader is bullish on Coinbase, DoorDash, and Poshmark. And commodities are suddenly out of favor with investors, essentially flat or lower over the past month. Could this be the perfect buying opportunity? Goldman says yes. And we'll talk about that. But first, today's markets, Dom Chu here with the most important numbers. The reason why they're saying the words super and cycle together a lot. And by the way, Kelly, if you're looking for one place in the market that's been on a super cycle, it's been the stock market. You could argue ever since the great financial crisis and the emergence from it back in 2009, 2010. Still, though, we're at markets that are pulling back today. We did hit, remember, record highs for all three major indexes, indices within the course of the last few trading days. But today, down down across the board, off the session lows. At the session lows, we were down about 30, uh, call it 38 points or so, up about 7 points, 8 points uh, again at the highs. So again, down 31, up 7 or 8 points in the S&P. That's the trading range you can see there, 46.78, the last trade there. The Dow Industrial is off one half of 1%, 36.248, and the Nasdaq Composite down two-thirds of 1%. 15,877 the last trade there. One place that we did see a record high in trading today at one point is in NVIDIA. I'm going to put the gold star up there even though you're seeing red. It's down 1.5% right now, well off of its session highs. It had spiked huge at one point today, mostly on headlines that Luminar Technologies, which makes self-driving car technology, is up again 18% off its session highs. It has inked a deal to be a partner on NVIDIA's new platform for self-driving cars. Those two companies together had been very positive at one point today, so certainly one to watch. NVIDIA, by the way, may be due for a cooling off. It is, if you're a statistical kind of fan out there, greater than three standard deviations above its 50-day average price. For those out there, very much a momentum trade. It's finally cooling off a little bit right now. And then also cryptocurrencies. You mentioned the big earnings reports after the closing bell. Well, Coinbase is now down on the session right now. It had been up a little bit in the, in the earlier in the day here. MicroStrategy as well, down 1.5%. Meanwhile, Bitcoin and Ethereum both hit record highs in trading today. Bitcoin prices right now just a hair below 66900 Ethereum 4779 Still, though, keeping on those cryptocurrencies. They've been hot for a while. Record highs today. We'll see if that translates into some commentary for Coinbase later on when it reports earnings. Okay, back over to you. We'll have more on that soon. Dom, thank you so much. Stocks are retreating a bit after a surge in wholesale prices raised concerns about inflation. The producer price index jumped six-tenths of a percent in October and a record 8.6% year-on-year. My next guest says inflation will likely remain above the Fed's 2% target, but he has some stock picks that he says should perform well no matter which way inflation and rates go from here. Joining me now is David Harden, CEO and Chief investment officer of Summit Global Investments. David, welcome back. The most notable thing, I think, is the fact that that PPI report has been followed by a plunge in bond yields. 
It has. And I think that this is the, you know, there's just some profit taking here going on, I think, in today's market. I do think higher forward, Kelly. Appreciate you having me on my, your show again. Yeah, no. So obviously always good to check in with you. So do you want to make a call on on rates? Um, you know, I guess here's my point. It's been very easy to make the inflation call, but I don't think people expected this kind of reaction in the bond market. And I don't know if that's changing any of your recommendations. Oh, absolutely. I think the bonds have come down in, in, in the 10 year quite considerably. I think that we're hitting more lows in that space. And I would expect the bond yields to continue to go up. But the yield curve in general, I think the shorter end of the curve is going to go up a lot faster because of this inflation that we're experiencing. And I still think the Fed is behind the curve here in the sense that they are behind getting rates higher. So I think short end goes up a lot faster than long end. I see a flattening yield curve here, but I definitely look for, I think the 10 year to be going up, not necessarily down, which has been over the last, uh, you know, several trading sessions. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about some of the stocks here. Uh, you've got some very pithy ways of describing them. So beginning with Ford, Elon without the eccentric, you're saying. So Ford's back above <laughs> $20 for the first time since the year 2000. Where do you see it going from here? Well, up. I think Ford's a great buy. It has a PE less than 10. It has a you know higher yield than the 10-year, just talking back you know to the 10 years. Slightly high beta, yes, on Ford. Everybody's out there talking about it, but they have a lot of room to grow. You look at their electric vehicles that they're coming out with now, they have room to get out a real Mustang electric vehicle that people really want to buy. So I think you're seeing a lot of push here from Ford into this space. And like I say, this is the Elon without the eccentric. So to me, if Tesla is too expensive, if Tesla is too wild, if the CEO is too crazy, then Ford is an absolutely great play. All right. Also, you have uh, Yandex, often called the Russian Google. Um, Merck, you like the pill. Sort of say maybe it helps take the sting a little bit out of all the vaccine fights. You also like T. Rowe Price. Tiro Price is a great company. I mean, they've had a recent pullback off their charts, but I think it's a good opportunity to pick up their shares um, you know, their earnings were not out of this world, but the acquisition of Oak Hills, I think, gives them a great position into this private capital space and the P.E. space. Current P.E. on, uh, you know, T. Rowe at 16, yield, good, beta, well. So I think this is a really well-managed company with a great opportunity here with this acquisition. And I noticed the lack of sort of growth stocks, if we want to still call them that, big cap tech names here. Is there a reason for that? Well, not necessarily. I think your short-term trade is probably growth and momentum right now. I do see some more growth ahead. I do see momentum taking the lead kind of into year end. But your long-term trade, I think this is time to build up some of that value exposure. And so, yes, some of those are outstanding. Not that we don't hold some of the big names like Amazon or what have you and, and Intel, et cetera, or Apple. But the reality is, is I think this is the time to build up some value. All right, David, great to have you. Thank you again. David Harden you. with Summit Global Investments. Just had a pretty poor auction over in the bond space of 10-year notes. It's affecting yields. Let's bring in Rick Santelli. Rick? Yes, not a very good auction. Uh, let's go through the internals. $39 billion of 10-year notes auctioned off at the top of the hour. And the grade I gave it, D+, plus, dog plus. Uh, the yield was 1.444. The one issued market was trading 1.425. Higher yield, lower price. Right from pricing alone, not a good grade. Then you look at the internals. Bid to cover 2.35, the weakest. 
since December 2020. The only bright spot, 71% on indirects in the dealers, taking a bit less than 10 auction average. But it just wasn't a pretty auction. Tomorrow we'll have 25 billion, 30 years. Uh, right now, if we were to close here at 142 in a 10 year, it'll be the lowest close in nearly seven weeks, going back to September 22nd. And of course, everybody's saying, how could we possibly be down here when we have 8.6 year-over-year -year, uh, inflation on the producer price index, the, the highest ever for year-over-year -year number? Well, probably because those that are short aren't making any money. Globally, there's a lot of buying going on and some of the curve issues going on with most of the yield curves in the Treasury complex at the flattest they've been anywhere from three months out to almost two years. Kelly, back to you. All right. Gloomy. Uh, Rick, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli at the CME. Let's get to now a blockbuster announcement from GE today. The shares are having their best day since July after the company announced it'll split itself into three separate units over the next few years. GE's struggles have been widely noted over the past two decades. Back in 2000, it was the most valuable company in the world with a market cap of nearly $700 billion. Today, it's roughly a fifth of that at around $120 billion. Let's bring in David Faber for more on what today's historic announcement means for GE, David, and for investors. Yeah, well, a bright day for investors, as you said, and it is a sad long-term story, although don't blame current GE CEO Larry Cove, Kelly. He told me earlier this morning, by the way, that the announced separation into aviation, energy and renewables, and healthcare businesses is going to allow for greater focus for both customers and shareholders. I think the logic is pretty straightforward. We know looking at spins elsewhere that the focus and the accountability in a structure like this always increase. We think we have an opportunity here as well to have sharper capital allocation and more strategic flexibility. And clearly this is a good thing for the, the teams in each of the businesses, both the teams we have today and the teams we need to recruit going forward given the discrete missions that each of the businesses will have. You know, in many ways, for those who of, of us who have followed the company closely, Kelly, not a huge surprise that this would be the end result. But Mr. Culp has been quite deliberate and continues to, uh, to be so. You indicated it in your introduction. This is going to take years. Uh, next year, I should say, excuse me, early 2023 is when GE Healthcare is going to be a a uh, publicly traded company on its own. And then it's not until 24 that you get renewable energy power and digital. Uh, and of course, what you're left with is that prized aviation businesses. Uh, but again, it goes back to this idea that we've been talking about for years now, which is shrink to grow. Uh, they do expect every investment, uh, every company to be investment grade. By the way, the board really took this up in a, in a serious manner, I'm told, uh, only a few months ago. While they may not have looked necessarily to the blueprint of what United Technologies did, Kelly, hmm. you, you can't get too far away from the value that's been created there as well as they spun off Otis and they spun off Carrier and then merged the remaining business with Raytheon, creating what has been a very good amount of, of value. Over here, not as much. You know, the stock price started off very strong this morning backing off a bit, perhaps because of simply what is a very long timeline to get all this done. Exactly. It's up three and a half percent now. It's not its best day. When it was up nine percent, it was its best day since July. So now right. we're, you know, we're talking about barely even a move higher. What was the sort of history with for the UTX example, maybe? I mean, how much of this gets priced in on the day of the announcement versus priced in as the details uh, become a lot more clear in the years out? 
You know, it can take a long time. And by the way, there's still so much to come. I mean, Culp indicated that in, in what you heard from him there in terms of capital allocation, right? They want every, every business to be uh, investment grade. Okay, that goes back to the cash flow characteristics of the business and how much debt it's going to have. But all that is yet to come. Even names. While, you know, he said certainly they're going to pay homage to the GE brand, it wasn't clear that they're all going to have the GE name. So to your point, there's a lot to come. But really, the value in the UTX split didn't occur until you actually saw Carrier out there traded on its own. And it started to put up very strong numbers under CEO David Gitlin or same with Otis. So it can take quite some time for the value to ultimately be delivered. But as we've seen, Kelly, it also took quite some time for a lot of value to be destroyed. Yeah, it did. No, there's so many beleaguered shareholders here. Uh, Historic day. David, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. David Faber down at the NYSE. Still ahead, wholesale prices surged in October by the most in more than a decade. My next guest says the economy is experiencing a demand-driven shock, and as a result, the Fed is behind the curve. Plus, can Coinbase cash in on Bitcoin's boom? Will DoorDash deliver, and can Posh meet the mark? That's all ahead on today's earnings exchange, where we preview three key names reporting after the bell. We're back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. My next guest has had some pretty outstanding calls in the past year. He predicted the market's V-shaped rebound and then predicted the Fed's taper this year when few thought it was likely. And now he says the Fed is still behind the curve. Here to explain and tell you where the risks are in this market is Michael Darda, the chief economist and strategist at MKM Partners. Michael, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So let's talk about, can I just ask you, to make sense of the fall in bond yields for us today, especially in a world that you've correctly described as being a demand-driven shock with the Fed behind the curve. How do you explain this decline? Absolutely. It certainly looks bizarre on its face. But if we look at what's driving bond yields lower, it's really a drop in the real interest rate. And I think that at least you know, over the last day or so, that could be due to some speculation that Fed Governor Brainer may may be elevated to replace Powell and she's viewed as more dovish. So what's also happening with this drop in real rates is inflation expectations actually are moving up. And at the five-year horizon, we're almost at 300 basis points, which, you know, would equal an all-time high 
at least back to the late 90s when we've had the, the TIPS market. So real rates, very low real rates are the main reason that hmm. bond yields are so low. And that can mean one of two things. It can mean that U.S. economic fundamentals are very weak, or it can mean accommodative monetary policy. In this case, I think it means accommodative monetary policy in a Federal Reserve behind the curve that's showing up in rising inflation expectations. And it's also more consistent with the cyclical boom that we've seen um, you know, with the unemployment rate collapsing to a succession of post-COVID lows. Right. So one of the other things that's been catching my attention is the all-time high in 30-year tips in terms of the price, mm -hmm. which is right. pushing that yield to historic lows. So in other words, are you saying that the market is paying more and more and more for inflation protection now on a 30-year basis? Yep, that's ex that's exactly what's happening, and that's being reflected in those inflation break-even spreads, and those are at you know fairly high levels, at least relative to the last business cycle. We didn't see anything like 300 basis points uh, tip spreads at the five-year horizon, and so the bond market, despite these low yields, is pricing in a overshoot of you know an average two percent inflation path. And we've already been well above 2% inflation. Um, so, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to have to make a decision here in terms of how much they are going to allow price pressures to, to run. One more question on this, and then I want to get your investment implications. But again, for those who, who see the headlines and go, okay, producer prices at the highest level in over a decade, the 10-year yield is barely above 1.4%. But like you're describing, other market-based measures of inflation expectations and the cost of future inflation coverage are rising significantly. So why isn't the 10-year bond yield moving higher or do you expect it to at some point? Yeah, I think eventually the Fed is going to have to write uh, the ship here and track the neutral interest rates. If the economy is recovering rapidly, the neutral interest rate will tend to rise. If the Fed fails to follow suit, then you have sustained inflationary pressure, and we're already facing that. But, you know, we have a perception that most of the inflationary pressure is temporary and due to supply chain bottlenecks and so forth. But if overall nominal demand continues to run as strong as it's been running, then we're likely to see these inflationary pressures remain elevated and the Fed will eventually have to address that by reducing liquidity and raising its short-term interest rate target. Um, at, you know, at that juncture, then you know, real rates will have to, to move up. And again, I'm not saying they have to be high, but probably not you know, minus 100 basis points. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense in an economy that's rapid, re rapidly reapproaching full employment if we're not already there. Final question, then let's talk about what it means for the market, which, you know, this is also what you're very good at translating. Where do you think the stock market offers opportunity in this scenario that you're describing? Where do you think the biggest risks are? Yeah, that's an uh, important question. So, you know, the market's done phenomenally well because, as you noted, you know, rates are still very low. Despite rising inflation expectations, real rates are, are at a record low. So the overall discount rate levels are low. Profits are high. Liquidity is high. So that's, you know, really been a strong tailwind for equity markets. In an environment where inflation rates are sustained at elevated levels and discount rates are going to be moving northward, 
it's really those high valuation stocks which would tend to be at, at risk. They've still done pretty well this year, but we haven't had a really meaningful rise in the 10-year Treasury yield this year either. During periods where the yield's moving up, we tend to see value stocks outperforming and the growthier, more expensive names underperforming. So if we end up in a situation where the economy is pretty powerful uh, moving into next year and inflation is higher and the Fed's going to be forced to move more quickly, I would be concerned about those areas that are really, you know, appearing to be frothy now, either driven by momentum mm. or, you know, standing at extremely high valuations. Michael Darda, thanks for joining me today to explain it all. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Mike Darda of MKM Partners. Coming up, what do Peloton yoga mats, Kirwood coffee makers, and electric fireplaces all have in common? They are some of the thousands of items stuck on container ships that have been anchored for weeks off the West Coast, hoping to dock and offload soon. We'll crunch the latest congestion numbers for you. And we're live from the COP26 Climate Summit, where the focus is shifting to science and innovation. We'll look at one company tackling emissions in agriculture with climate tech. Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's about 100 points off session lows right now, but it's still down 169 or half a percent. And you could see some pretty consistent price action across all three major averages today. The Nasdaq slightly underperforming. It's down six tenths of a percent. Here are some of the other movers we're watching this hour. With Hertz leading the way, rejoining the Nasdaq today under ticker HTZ after emerging from bankruptcy in June. Shares price at the high end of the range at 29, but open lower at 26.25. They're currently around 27 and change. Peloton also lower after announcing a new training device. The stock sliding to a fresh 52-week low and is now down 46% this month and 71% from its all-time high in January. Peton is below $50 a share. And PayPal is also sinking after the company reported a mixed quarter and gave disappointing guidance for the fourth quarter. Shares are on pace for their second worst trading day ever with a decline of 11.5% and they are 35% off their all-time high. Still, Jim Cramer thinks the pullback gives management an opportunity to put their money to work, saying in his Investing Club newsletter they should announce a buyback. That is, if they're truly confident in how bright the company's future will be. To access Jim's insights, sign up by pointing your phone's camera at that QR code on your screen or go to cnbc.com slash investing club. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. At least 13 top Trump administration officials illegally campaigned for the president while in office. That's according to a federal report from the Office of Special Counsel, which is led by a Republican appointed by former President Trump. 
The list includes former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and advisor Kellyanne Conway, who was cited for multiple violations. And on the news, the January 6th panel intensifying its investigation of Trump associates and their possible connections to the riots on Capitol Hill. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. The Justice Department launching an environmental justice investigation at issue here is whether Alabama's wastewater disposal practices discriminate against certain black residents and put their health at greater risk. It's the first ever such investigation by the Justice Department. And Oklahoma Supreme Court has thrown out a $465 million opioid judgment against Johnson & Johnson justices ruling that the state's public nuisance law shouldn't apply. It's quite the development. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, Coinbase is two for two on earnings beats as a public company, but after Robinhood's whiff, will its streak continue? Meanwhile, DoorDash has reported wider than expected losses in the past three quarters, but will the launch of its nationwide delivery service, featuring the likes of Katz's Deli, be a game changer? And the secondhand retailers are showing signs of life again, as some anticipate Poshmark and FredUp could have hot holiday sales. We have the key metrics to watch and how to position ahead of these after the bell reports right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange. Today, we're looking at Coinbase, DoorDash, and Poshmark's results after the bell today. So let's start with Coinbase, where after taking a dive this summer, the shares are up nearly 45% in the past month. That's thanks to record highs in Bitcoin and Ethereum, finally bringing Coinbase back above its IPO price. Now, the company also recently announced it'll launch a marketplace for creating and trading NFTs, which some have described as a very arcane, difficult thing to do. Kate Rooney has the numbers to watch tonight. And Matt Maley joins us. He's Miller Tabak's managing director and CNBC contributor, and he'll have our trades today. Welcome to you both. Kate, let's kick things off with the most important metrics for people to watch. So, Kelly, I mentioned this yesterday with PayPal, but again, it's about the take rate. So how much Coinbase is actually keeping um, of the trade and when it comes to revenue, that's been coming down. And as trading gets more commoditized, a lot of analysts I've been talking to say this is this is key. They want to see how much pricing power Coinbase still has. Are they feeling the pressure as there's more competition? You've got Square, Robinhood moving into this space. Big one to watch. And then the other big one is the revenue mix. So institutional versus retail trading. Is it more retail traders? Is it more uh, big wigs and hedge funds? The funny thing about that, it used to be more about institutions. People got excited when they saw more institutional interest. Analysts I've been talking to lately say that's actually not great. They have a lot more pricing power when it comes to the retail trader. Hmm. Uh, They don't pay as much. Uh, Those institutions don't tend to pay as much to trade and then trading revenue in general. Um, How much comes from transaction-based revenue? So in Q2, that was 95%. It really, that is their bread and butter for Coinbase. They make the majority of their money on trading revenue. If there's any sort of diversification, if they have any other line items that add significantly to revenue, that could be huge. The other thing, you mentioned it, NFTs. It's a long-term vision, but that's really why Wall Street has been bullish on Coinbase. It's the bull case, the long-term vision as Facebook and Meta get into the metaverse. Interesting. So take rate revenue mix and then kind of just revenue contributors in general. And, you know, Matt, we just saw obviously Robinhood not benefiting as much as people would have assumed from Bitcoin, maybe in part because there was less trading in Doge or whatever. What do you think is going to happen and be the most important thing with Coinbase tonight? What's the trade? Well, I mean, one of the things we have to think about is what is the year-end trade? It's it's funny because, you know, one of the reasons why Coinbase had fallen off after its IPO was that, you know, 
bad, badly timed in terms of the, the price of Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and these other ones were all falling at the time, and therefore the trading really slowed down. Well, it's picking back up now in a significant way. And of course, even though your, your margins may be shrinking a little bit, you can make it up in volume. And one of the things I think is kind of interesting that people need to consider, at least on a short-term basis, when I, I mean that between now and the end of the year, is that you know, institutional players, they, what do they do at the end of the year? They become much more short-term oriented because they care about their performance. What, what's their bonus going to be or, or can they keep their job? And what they like to do is to go into things that are under-owned. We saw this last year as they came piling into the energy stocks because that's where they could make, you know, they could play catch up with some of the performance or, or get it further ahead of their bogey. And in these, uh, uh, these, um, Cryptocurrencies are another area where they're very under-owned. So if they keep rallying into the end of the year, you're going to see a lot more uh, volume of those things, and it's going to help a Coinbase. So it, it's kind of a performance play thing. After the first of the year, then you got to reconsider things uh, uh, because, you know, again, these margin issues are, are going to start uh, becoming a bigger issue. All right. So I would describe you as cautiously optimistic for Coin here. And, Kate, what would you say was the big reason why Robinhood's crypto trading just didn't me measure up to what people were thinking? So the CFO said it was really all about Dogecoin. That was what, what drove some of the excitement in Q2. That really fell off. They didn't have that same viral cryptocurrency to drive results in Q3. And then they said, as far as a growth lever of adding new cryptocurrencies, they're, they're just not going to do it. He said that there's too much regulatory uncertainty. So they're, they're really seeing that direct result. And it's, he said, almost impossible to forecast. So Square has had the same issue where just less volatility in general, meant less trading volume. And Coinbase is likely going to see the same thing. And one of the interesting things about Coinbase is you can look at other sort of third-party metrics and see their daily trading volume. And so uh, a lot of analysts that cover the stock say we pretty much know that Coinbase saw a slower Q3. It'll be interesting to see if there's a pickup while Bitcoin recovers to 68,000. Right. Uh, and any color on kind of what we're seeing right now heading into the end of the year, they've got an interesting guidancing where they lay out multiple scenarios. So as much as we can kind of glean from that, but it's a, a unique way of guiding. It's a multiple choice uh, exam, right. sort of. <laughs> Kate, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Well, Kate Rudy will be covering that later for us. And we'll move along to DoorDash, which is up 75% now since its spring lows. The company has seen strong growth, but its headwinds are more in terms of labor and competition from Grubhub and Uber Eats. They just announced a national delivery and direct competition with Gold Belly, selling food and retail goods from restaurants and local shops. Let's bring in Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, I mean, you'd think maybe for this one, expectations are a little higher then, right? Yeah, I mean, DoorDash has actually managed their supply chain problem, that is their driver or dash problem, a little bit better than others in the gig economy. They haven't had such a big problem. They've been able to grow revenue, gross order volume by triple digits throughout the pandemic. So I actually think for this name, it's going to be a question of demand. How sticky is delivery throughout the pandemic? Is that going to last post-pandemic? And really, the next leg of growth for this company and all the delivery companies is how much are they actually owning? How much vertical integration to fulfill that instant delivery or same-day delivery? This is where they're all moving to. That's capital-intensive. Um, but Tony Hsu is very well liked in the industry. He's moving into groceries. You mentioned a number of other partnerships. So expectations are high. And because of valuation, it's valued so much higher than, say, an Uber or Grubhub. True. And its performance lately has kind of, you know, borne that out. Matt, you say it's near a key technical juncture. What is that? 
Yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, the stock has dropped below its uh, kind of trend line going back uh, several months, uh, but it hasn't really broken down in, 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 in a major way yet. So what we're looking at right now is see how does it react to these these earnings uh, reports? Because if it can bounce back, well, I'm looking at the 50-day moving average. That had been a key support level for, for uh, four or five uh, months leading into October. And then it broke below that level. And so that old support level became new resistance. We got right back up to that early November, didn't break it. So can we bounce back and get back above that level, that's going to be very bullish. If, however, it rolls back over and breaks below that, uh, you know, it's already getting below that 190 level. Exactly. You get much more further below that. It's going to cause some problems. So uh, I, I must admit, I was at a wedding this weekend with a bunch of my nieces and nephews. They all said that they're going to be buying food from from uh, I haven't delivered for <laughs> forever. So uh, I, I must admit, I'm a little bit more bullish on it than I had been going into this. I'm, Deirdre, I'm like a frustrated, I, I'm a wannabe door dasher, but like every time, it's just not a great, it's so expensive <laughs> and stuff is wrong and then it's cold and, you know. Are you could, using something else? I, yeah, my, my kitchen, you know, and I would be happy to be a DoorDash okay. customer. I would love to be one, but I just, is as much as I don't like to cook, ordering out seems worse. Well, Kelly, they're betting on you to order things like <laughs> diapers and skincare and all that other stuff that you can't cook and that you may need within just a few hours from centers. So maybe they won't have you for restaurants, but they're hoping that they're going to have you on a bunch of other products. Let me tell and you something. Kids, of course. Apologies to everyone at the Target at 8 p.m. last night when I was trying to get the diaper boxes in the back <laughs> in the middle of the, it was not it was not pleasant. Uh, Matt, to your point, it's below 190. You were saying that level maybe makes you a little bit more cautious on the name. We're at 188 today, um, but we'll see where it goes off of that earnings report. Deirdre, thanks. We'll check in with you soon, Deirdre Bosa. And finally today, let's talk some Poshmark. The secondhand marketplace is expected to post another loss this quarter. Shares have been crushed or down more than 30% in the past three months, but some believe the company and others like ThreadUp could be insulated from supply chain issues as versus the traditional retailers this holiday season. The shares are up more than 3% today after those better than expected results from the real real and ThreadUp. Let's bring in Courtney Reagan court uh, with what people are watching for tonight. Yeah, you know, Kelly, I think, as you mentioned, we are expected to see another loss from Poshmark, but the path to profitability is going to be something that investors are really keyed in on to see if we get any updates there. The Real Real last night did say that starting next quarter, they're going to give us a more definitive timeline for that plan for them. And I think that's what many are hoping for from Poshmark as well. It is EBITDA positive, and it is probably the closest of the three to getting to that profitability because it's very asset like light. If you think about Poshmark compared to the other two, it's much more like an eBay with a social component than the other two. Because if you are selling on Poshmark, you physically retain ownership of those items until a seller wants to buy them from you. And then you are in charge of the packing up and the shipping it out and the buyer is paying for that shipping cost. So basically Poshmark is just giving you a marketplace. So they don't have those heavy costs of distribution centers and shipping because that's really borne by the buyers and the sellers. And I have to admit, Kelly, I am skeptical about secondhand being a popular destination for holiday gifts. Mm -hmm. I have bought and sold on these platforms myself. But for me or for my kiddo, I don't know I'd feel super comfortable buying a gift for someone else from one of these platforms unless it was one of those new with tags. 
items, you also can't return on Poshmark. So hmm. that makes it a little trickier, too, for a gift giver. Especially for sizing. No, that's a great point. I'm looking at the stock court, and you're describing that around $24 right now. Matt, you're watching if it breaks below 23 or above 27 Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's been stuck in this sideways range here for a couple of uh, months now. And uh, we're closer to the low end of that range. Uh, but, hope, you know, we'll, we'll see if this, this is kind of a catalyst to take it higher. That 27, whenever a stock stays in, in, inside a sideways range for a couple of weeks is one thing. But for a couple of months like this one has, whenever it finally breaks out of that range, it, it can really, uh, it really moves in a, in a significant way. So, uh, really, this could be a catalyst for a very important moves. We'll have to keep a close eye on it after the report. And we're showing a reminder of the year-to-date performance of these stocks still underwater uh, and still not expected to report a profit. I always want to note that when we're calling it earnings exchange. Court, thanks. We appreciate it. Courtney Reagan with the preview tonight. Matt Melly, thanks for all your trades. Matt Melly joining us from Miller Tayback. Still ahead, walk-ins not welcome. That's the message at the already capacity crunch West Coast ports. We'll look at the surprise ship troubles in California Bay and what it means for the supply chain snarl next. There are 77 container vessels waiting in California's San Pedro Bay. That's a record high, but some of those ships are unscheduled container charters with no docking appointment. And these maritime pop-ins are causing big problems both on the water and on land. Lorian LaRocco joins me to discuss the impact of these unscheduled. How can they pop? You can't just send a ship and expect. What are they thinking? They can and they are. Wow, it's amazing. <laughs> and, and, and it's insane. And when you look at that 77 number. The amount of unscheduled vessels really is a very good portion of it. In fact, about 21 of them. You have 17 vessels in the port of, from, that are waiting for the port of Los Angeles, five waiting for the port of Long Beach. And what happens is these vessels are giving the port 96 hours in advance saying, hey, I'm here. And then they have to anchor. And so this is adding to the congestion that we're seeing at the ports. And these are generally smaller vessels that aren't, you know, and so we named some of the merchandise that might be on these container ships. Explain who this affects mostly. This affects any U.S. importer, really. Um, You know, these range from anywhere from, say, like 1,200 containers to almost 9,000 containers. But every retailer is using them. And what happens is, this is there's really no rule against of what we're saying. There's no regulation about it. Absolutely not. And, and there's a glitch in the system. And it's really ironic because we have the Biden administration putting pressure on the ports to do this. And here's the glitch. U.S. Uh, Customs gets the manifest of these vessels about 30 days in advance. And then you've got the U.S. ports that only get 96 hours. U.S. Customs doesn't share this data with the ports. It's insane. How can you plan? You know, you covered this beat so well, but there's so many people who are waking up to just how fragmented and and old world Mm -hmm. shipping is. And you wonder if this should be an example when the Biden administration is looking for things to change in this crisis, if this should be one of the things that changes. Absolutely. And, And it's funny, anybody that's in the industry is like, thank goodness you're, you know, you're reporting on this because it's a massive problem. And we talked about some of the items that would, you know, sort of be affected by these containers. 77 ships, a record high, means, you know, this problem is as bad as it's ever been. What has the change to 24-7 operations, if it's even been put into place? How has that helped if it has helped at this point? There's only one terminal out of all the, out of all the terminals between the two ports that are 24-7. There are still 30 percent of the appointments not being taken, but that's because there are inherent problems in those in in the ports that aren't being fixed. Gene Soroka did tell me, though, that they are able to move out more of these containers 
um, as the last time we were on, we still had a bunch that were accruing the penalty, and they still are, but they are, but they are slowly moving out. And so final question in terms of that penalty, then how many people are paying it and has it been making a difference? I think it was $100 a day, right? It's $100 a day for every day. And Gene uh, Soroka is going to make an announcement in like the, next several, like the next several days or so if they're going to implement it based on how many containers go through. But when you have all these containers waiting, you've got items like Target, Paul Mitchell Systems, you know, they just had 1,600 containers waiting on one of these unscheduled vessels. But the problem is people are paying big bucks for these vessels and they don't have an appointment date. <laughs> it's insane. So you've got Keurig, they had 50, 55 containers filled of the mini Keurig makers just for Target. And then holiday items. These are items that the retailers want to sell and they can't because they're on floating storage. That's amazing. Who would have known all of these problems exist in the way things are run? Lorianne, thanks so much for joining us to explain it. We appreciate it, Lorianne LaRocco. Don't fear the taper or at least higher rates. That's what Goldman is telling commodity investors as the Fed gets a bit more hawkish. Why you should consider buying the dip in base metals next. The Fed announcing its tapering plan last week and tweaking its inflation language just a hair with Powell saying he expects it to last well into 2022. No guidance yet on future rate hikes, but Goldman is telling commodity investors not to fear this Fed and that it's a great time to buy the recent pullback in metals for the long term. They're saying commodities will be the best inflation hedge in the coming months and the only hedge against stagflation. Joining me now is Damien Kervalin. He's head of energy research at Goldman Sachs. Damien, it's great to have you back. I almost want to ask you to rank your commodities, you know, one to 10, most to least favorite, mostly because I'd be curious where oil would fall on that list. Yeah, sure. Hi, Yali. Uh, I think it's important to emphasize that when 2021 was a demand recovery, 2022 for commodities will be the structural repricing. So to answer your question, we're looking for commodities where we're not only in deficits, but we're not seeing a sufficient supply response. And top of that list will be oil and copper. You know, markets where we're not actually at low inventories and we're yet to see that meaningful ramp up in activity, whether it's current project, whether it's future projects to meet growing demand. So those are really our two favorite here. What would you say to traders who go, but, you know, is crude acting as strong as it was a month ago? You know, what's plaguing it? What's ailing? And again, I'm not I don't want to make too much of the price action. We're still, you know, at 83 and a half for WTI. Yeah, so there's short-term volatility, right? So, you know, it was the debate on whether the U.S. will release barrels from the SPR. You know, that probably unlikely in the short term, but that's still a threat. Then late November, we have the restart of the negotiations of Iran. You know, how tight is the gas market? How much is that supporting oil demand? So you have all those cross currents which create this near-term uh, volatility. But here's the big picture, right? We've averaged above $80 for several months now we're not seeing that big supply response. You know, our markets are downward sloping. So a year from now, the price is six, $7 even lower. Hmm. That's not the right incentive price. So that's really the resetting we're talking about. Those whole curves have to move higher to finally solve the deficits. And remind me where your price target is for, so your end year par, uh, target for Brent is 90. So I imagine WTI a few dollars below that, but you're saying that basically oil and copper are the tightest physical markets right now. So any increase in demand that doesn't see an increase in supply, like you're saying, should drive prices higher. I just want everyone to be aware as well that you guys are not actually as bullish uh, on natural gas. Could you explain why? Yeah, so natural gas is definitely in a big deficit today. And nothing's really been resolved for the winter, right? The market, especially in Europe, is selling off, but those Russian flows are still well below where they should be. So that's the near term, still very real risk. But 
three, four months from now, you're at the end of winter, you know, demand naturally uh, recedes. Some of the supply disruptions we had last year improve. And so from that perspective, you know, the gas trade is a fade by next spring. Again, nothing resolved, but seasonally that plays out. That's very different from oil, right? The issue of an oil are not seasonal. They're not due to winter weather. They are structural. And that's why we feel that there is a clear opportunity here in the oil market Nat gas, and copper. Yeah, I was sorry. I was going to say Nat gas is below $5 there as you were describing that. Is that because its supply is coming online more quickly than it is with oil? So U.S., uh, especially gas, is sold off today. Two drivers, um, you know, the weather forecast for November are not colder than normal. They're, in fact, slightly warmer. And then U.S. production's beating to the upside as well. Now, that's pretty U.S.-specific, right? We have shale. We have short-cycle supply. The rest of the world doesn't have that. So that can explain the divergence between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And we're least concerned about the U.S. gas market. Sure, you know, very cold weather will mean higher prices. But the real risk of a shortage that has a negative impact on economic growth is much more pressing in Europe than here in the U.S. Yeah, and we are relieved for that. We hope that it doesn't get uh, really bad in any parts of the world this winter. And it's 65 degrees here in New York today. So <laughs> that might explain, like you're saying, what's been going on with Nat Gas. Damien, great to have you on today. Thank you. Damien Kerbalin joining me from Goldman Sachs. Up next, as countries and corporations strengthen climate pledges at COP26, we're heading out to the farm for a look at how one company is reducing agricultural waste emissions. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Carbon capture is all the rage when it comes to climate innovation, but does it work? Diane Olick is at COP26 with a look at how one company is trying to use tech to battle climate change. Diana? Kelly, agriculture is a great absorber of carbon, but when the plants die or are harvested, all that carbon is released out into the atmosphere. Enter Charm Industrial, a carbon capture startup that gathers up all that agricultural waste or so-called biomass, like these almond shells, and it then grinds it all up, boils it, and turns it into an oil, which they then shoot deep underground. So we can capture some of that CO2 before it gets re-emitted and put it back underground so that it um, reduces the fossil emissions that, that are still happening all around us. Investor, uh, customers of Charm include Microsoft, Shopify, Square, and Stripe. Reinhardt is here at COP26 meeting with industry and government leaders as well as its customers, like Stripe's head of climate, over the weekend, where better than, where better than at a Scottish sheep farm. We're very focused on delivery and changing the narrative around the carbon removal industry to one of delivery. Uh, but we do need to also scale up demand uh, and supply, and so there's a lot to figure out. These companies use Charm's removal as a credit to offset their own carbon emissions. As the carbon credit markets ramp up, it is innovation like this that stands to make big green in a green economy. Kelly? It's interesting to see if that'll work in the agricultural space, Diane. I know when it comes to power plants and that sort of thing, it's been a little bit more difficult uh, for carbon capture to work. Well, actually, we've seen a lot of innovation. In fact, we saw a company that actually uses these enormous fans to suck carbon out of the air and then heat it. So, again, it can liquefy and they can uh, use it for other things, even put it into Coca-Cola if they want to use the carbon as bubbles. So there's a lot of innovation in this space, but obviously it needs more money. It needs to scale much bigger than it is already now to have a real impact. Yeah, I know. It's funny you mentioned that in passing. It is true that, you know, the big soda, anyone who's making carbonated drinks needs access to some of that as well. I think there was a shortage 
percentage even the past couple months of price spikes. Uh, Diana, so much to cover. A very, very busy week there. We really appreciate you joining us. Diana Olick at COP26 in Glasgow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.